This is exactly right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to my favorite murder. That's Georgia Hartstark. Hi, that's Karen Kilgariff. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) And that's that. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Good. It was a rainy Los Angeles day. Ugh. I love it so much, the rain. The rare rain in Los Angeles. Okay, I have to ask you, did you watch... This fucking documentary on Netflix that just came out. American American Nightmare. I have not. I've only seen people talking about it and freaking out about it. It is so troubling. And it's from right by your hometown, I think, right? It's Vallejo, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's so upsetting and troubling and incredible and unbelievable. And I cried at the end, which I don't ever do. Yeah. I totally cried at the end, but yeah, you have to watch it and then we talk about it. It's a real life gone girl type of story. I have definitely heard of that story. Mm-hmm. And when the actual like investigation started where they were like, "What? how did this happen that, that this wasn't handled? It's infuriating. And it's just the example of like, this is why women overwhelmingly have a hard time reporting their sexual assault because we're not believed. It's, you know, you're going to scream and pull your fucking right. hair out. Yeah. Also, because it's so surreal. Like yeah. the things that are being described when it's actually, you can tell that the genre is like turning on itself mm-hmm. because when you hear in the trailer, you're like, oh, it's this guy, it, he's guilty. Or you're doing yes. the thing where you're trying to pick what's going to happen and kind of like settle it in the trailer. And they're just like, no, no, get ready. I mean, it's only two parts of the show. I mean, oh my God, it was, it was awful. Yeah. And this woman is so resilient. Denise, who the story's about. Incredible. I was over busy watching the end or finishing up this current season of Fargo, which I loved and thought was great. I gave up. I gave up on it. Yeah. You love it? Is it good? Just yeah. Go back, it was great. With it? Okay. Here's the thing these days, though. I don't know what gets anybody through anything anymore. Like, how many screens can we hold up in front of our faces (laughs) to act like everything at the store doesn't cost $10? And what that means to people who don't have $10. Like, what the fuck? It's like... 
to me, that's, I'm watching everything kind of clasping my hands together. Like, and also I know right now I'm turning away from very important things. Absolutely. It's horrible. That's life. It's just the constant need to turn away and an inability to. Well, and this kind of it rising where it's like year by year since 2016, it's just been more to turn away from where now it's like, can true crime do it anymore? I don't know. Right. I don't know where my escape level needs to be at. Yeah. Speaking of, did you see that Los Angeles Innocence Project has accepted Scott Peterson as a client? No. Yeah. They said there's new evidence that might change the outcome of his conviction. Huh. I know. Well, you have to consider that people that work at a place like that know what they're talking about. Right, right. The Innocence Project has to be nothing but respectable, right? So, like, there's got to be something that we don't know. Yes. On this show, there's always a lot we don't know. <laughs> Jesus Christ. On this show, there's that's the given. Who? Us? Whom? Whom? <laughs> I think, though, I can still remember parts of you covering that story. Yeah, not that long ago. There's parts of it I just will never get out of my head. This is the Mm -hmm. issue with when we know these stories well. Right. That it's very easy to then just go, nope, impossible. Yeah. But what about this and this and this, if you know all the information? I guess they're focusing on the fact that there was a break-in across the street from the Peterson household the day Lacey went missing. Wow. That's somehow involved in it. I don't, there's not a lot of info out there. Well, and if it's the idea of everything must be investigated and if somebody gets railroaded, which we know in this day and age is very possible, mm-hmm. and the Innocence Project is simply saying we must at least look into it, then I agree. Totally. What fun thing has happened to you this week? I think this is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is... <laughs> this is... <laughs> You want a fun thing? Do you have a fun thing? I could think of one if you tell me one first. (laughs) Well, that's the whole key to thinking of one is someone else is telling you one. Let's see. I got a chemical peel on my face. Yes. Here we go. That's exciting, right? Like, Did it hurt? Was your face numb? No, it's just kind of tight and itchy and it's starting to peel, which is Mm -hmm. fucking wild. It's like a hardcore one because I have melasma, which is the hyperpigmentation that's really hard to treat. Mm -hmm. So I'm fucking so excited about this. I love the recovery process and peeling and looking a little bit unhinged. Sure. And that is an excuse to be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't. I I couldn't possibly... (laughs) I did go yesterday to a football thing, like a friend's house for football, but it was like people that are so low key that I was like, I'm just going to tell them what happened and they're not going to care. It wasn't like a, a big party, but I'm, I definitely like saw myself in the mirror a couple times and was like, oh my God, I'm just talking to this person about like my dog and... I look like him from a horror movie. That's almost like a next level social anxiety practice yeah, where you're like, right. hey, maybe I don't have this at all if I can <laughs> convince myself to do this. But also that's like quality of friendship. But Right. And maybe these are my people that I was like, there is not a single fucking person there that I was like, this person's going to judge me. So that's nice. Dream football game. Yeah. Just a dream. Tori, our host made twice baked potatoes Ugh. with fucking buffalo chicken on top of them. Ooh. So that was a win. Win. That is like a perfect football game snack or dinner, Mm -hmm. however you had it. That sounds amazing. We got a lot of 
messages about people needing to tell us about the baked potato trucks <laughs> in their community. They did. Yeah. And I thought that it's r really beautiful that that's out there for people like, hell yes, leave your house, get a baked potato, get yeah. a twice baked potato, throw some buffalo chicken on there, make it your own. And it makes me so happy that this is the kind of podcast where people are, it's true crime comedy, but really quickly, let me tell you where you can get a baked potato next time you're in Detroit. Let's you know? focus on the fundamentals. F-U-N. <laughs> what about you? What's your plus? I was going to say I went to get my hair done. That's cute, Bob. Thank you. Right when the Zoom started, I was like, oh, I should have at least brushed this. It's cute. It's kicky. It's very kicky. Thank you. It also, this was the hair I had all through the 90s. It's very 90s. Yeah. Now, Vince must be thrilled. Oh, yeah. Vince and your dad are texting every week <laughs> about football. Next week, your dad's team and Vince's team are playing each other. Oh, shit. And I was like, because it's in San Francisco, I was like, go pick up home gym and take him. And he's like, we wouldn't get along. It's <laughs> like, oh, it's like, maybe yeah. I'd go to his house and watch it, but we're not going to the... No, he wouldn't go to a stadium because first of all, and you could talk to anybody in the Bay Area, the stadium's now in San Jose, which is insane. And it's just like, oh. it used to be right outside in Daly City yeah. or right outside. Now it's kind of far down. But also my dad doesn't like going anywhere because he needs like the first seat. Right. You know, he needs special circumstances and he's still not okay with the fact that he needs that so yeah yeah asking for help is hard but if vince flew up took a you know 79 dollars <laughs> southwest flight and yeah. just rang the doorbell you know my dad would lose his mind showed up with a six-pack and some brats <laughs> oh my god barbecuing in the rain <laughs> No, they'll bring it in the house. They'll bring the grill in the house. Or right over the, put sticks on hot dogs and stick it right in Your the, the wood-burning stove. Yes. Right, would be fine with that. I just saw on TikTok, they're all about that man who has been a season ticket holder for like 66 years. Yeah. Oh, crazy. I, I love mean, it. The greatest. They have Taylor Swift. We have Eminem. Yeah. I mean, apples to oranges, really. And we have, I don't know, who do we have? Mark Zuckerberg? <laughs> <laughs> who, did the, who did the 49ers get I don't know. To, to show up? What do they have? They've got punk rock, I guess. Should we do exactly right corner and then oh, start yeah. the show now that we've landed on a high note? Oh, real quick, before we get into the exactly right corner, we want to let you guys know about one of our favorite true crime podcasts in the world going on tour. That's right. Everybody's favorite true crime podcast, Criminal, hosted by the legendary Phoebe Judge, is celebrating its 10th anniversary with a new live show. So it features seven brand new stories, never before seen photos and videos, and a behind the scenes look at how Criminal is made. So Phoebe and co-creator Lauren Spohr are coming to 13 cities, including Los Angeles on February 7th and New York on February 14th. Some people call it Valentine's Day. Oh, how romantic. So visit thisiscriminal.com slash live for tickets. Tell us how it is. I can't wait to see them live. I mean, how exciting is that? What a great show. Epic. We'll slide right over into Exactly Right highlights. So now that all the strikes are behind us, guests are returning to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. So this week, Kara and Lisa are joined by actor Allison Psycho, who plays Elliot Stabler's daughter, Kathleen, to discuss Blood, an episode from 2005. Fun and hilarious comedian Beth Stelling is Michelle Buteau and Jordan Carlos's guest on Adulting. Also, email adultingquestions at gmail.com for the opportunity to have your questions answered on a future episode. Yeah, if 
if you have any questions, they're talking about what it is to be an adult over on that podcast. They have a lot of great advice. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes it's just we have basic stuff where it's like, where do I keep my rubber bands? Right. And like, how do you store batteries without having them catch on fire? That's a I don't know. That's the question I want answered. If I'm going to a football party that's serving something as delicious as twice baked potatoes with buffalo chicken on top, what should I bring? Right. How do I even up the score there? Definitely. Also, comedian Andy Awansio joins Kurt and Scotty over on Bananas to discuss the world's weirdest headlines and go to the website scottysgettinpetting.dog. <laughs> To track Scotty's mission to pet 100 dogs in 2024. That's oh, a person Scotty. who is digging it out and making it happen in 2024 with the good vibes. Like that is a great example of resolutions, right? I'm going to pet 100 dogs in 2024. Yeah. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you in part by Squarespace. Whether you're a comedian promoting a tour, a small business owner selling your product, a therapist booking appointments with patients, or anything in between, a website with Squarespace will help get you there. Squarespace has a collection of beautiful website templates for every category and use case, so you're never really starting from scratch. Each template is customizable to reflect your brand or your identity and help you stand out on the web. Once you're up and running, Squarespace makes it easy to engage with and understand your audience. Their powerful analytics tools and easy-to-use email campaigns can help you grow your business and foster deep connections. Upload, organize, and access all of your content in one place with Squarespace's new asset library. Manage all of your files from one central hub and use them across Squarespace platform however you see fit. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com murder to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com murder. Goodbye. Goodbye. Many people are interested in starting therapy, but aren't sure where to start or if they even have the time. A busy schedule shouldn't prevent you from starting therapy. And with Talkspace, it doesn't have to. By doing everything online, Talkspace has made getting the help you want easy, accessible, and affordable. You can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. Talkspace's virtual therapy sessions are convenient and allow you to meet with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home. You can even send messages to your therapist between between appointments. When you've met your therapy goals or you simply want to cancel, Talkspace has a simple cancellation process. George and I have been talking about therapy on this podcast since we started. We both really believe in it. And we both really believe that Talkspace is a great way to get started, especially if you're intimidated by the idea of therapy. Therapy can help anybody. You don't have to have some huge problem. It's really great to be able to process your life and the things that you want to talk about with a person who has a educated and trained perspective. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash MFM. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash MFM. Goodbye. Georgia, let me ask you a question. Were mm. you trying to make any helpful swaps in this new year? All of them. Yeah. Maybe less dining out, more cooking, or perhaps spending less money, saving more, or even just making more sustainable choices? The answer is yes. Luckily, Thrive Market is here to help you and me with all of that and more. Thrive Market has everything you need to stock your pantry with organic, high-quality products and household essentials, all delivered right to your door. They only carry brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. In fact, they actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across both their food and cleaning categories. Quality doesn't have to break the bank. 
As a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order, usually around 30% each time. One of my goals this year is to stop using any toxic cleaning supplies in my house because, oh my God, it's so bad for you, it turns out. Mm-hmm. So everything from like my bathroom cleansers, my dish soap, my laundry detergent, all of that stuff, I can get right on Thrive Market and just immediately start doing better. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash murder for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash murder. Thrivemarket.com slash murder. Goodbye. Goodbye. All right. You're first this week. Yeah. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Okay. This was one of those stories where I remember talking about it a while ago and then, you know, we're so well produced these days. We're so far ahead of the game and also so well produced that my researcher, Marin, just had a baby. <laughs> I know. Just had a baby. And I'll, I'll, I still have my research and nothing has been, not a trick has been missed. So Marin- You know what's crazy? Mine too. Oh, that's right. Allie had a baby. Allie had Both her baby first. Yes. <laughs> and Jay, Elias, proud papa, they all had babies. And things are still smooth as a fucking Unbelievable. Cucumber. At this yeah. company, we had four different people have babies in the last like three months. It's crazy. So Marin McGlashan, my researcher and first time mother, Aww. congratulations on your baby. I'm so excited for you. So anyway... This is one of those stories that I knew and know, and I'm like, how do I know this? And then as I was reading through it, some of the research is from the great TV show, A Crime to Remember. Oh, that was such a good show. It's such a good show. So that's how I recognized it. Maybe you will too. So we start in 1955 on the Gold Coast of Long Island, which is an extremely moneyed area. I'm going to start using that term. (laughs) Where New York City's blue blood elite keep palatial second homes and throw parties for their just as obscenely rich friends and frenemies. Some of the families who own Gold Coast estates have familiar names like the Vanderbilts, the Astors, Mm -hmm. the Morgans, Mm -hmm. the Woolworths. I didn't realize the Woolworths were like fancy. Oh, yeah. Fancy people. Department store money. That's right. All that good popcorn money. But back in the early 20th century, the last name Woodward held the same kind of renown. The Woodward family made their fortune in banking, and they sat at the tip top of New York high society. And on the night of October 30th, 1955, 35-year-old Billy Woodward and his 40-year-old wife, Anne, actually were attending a dinner party being thrown in the honor of their good friends, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. So that's how high society Mm. these people are. Yeah. But... The Woodward Sterling reputation will be forever marred by a dramatic turn of events at their own Long Island estate that same night, a shotgun blast, the police on estate grounds, and a body lying lifeless in a bedroom doorway. <gasps> this is the story of the murder of Billy Woodward. Well, wow. Do I know this one? I think it might slowly become clear. So okay. the main sources used for this story today are a book by a writer named Susan Brody called This Crazy Thing Called Love, an episode of the Investigation Discovery series, A Crime to Remember, called Who Killed Mr. Woodward, mm-hmm. and the book Deliberate Cruelty by writer Roseanne Montillo. And the rest are in our show notes. So we're going to start off with Anne Woodward's life. 
She's born in 1915, and her name when she's born is Angeline Crowell. She lives on a farm outside Pittsburgh, Kansas. Did you know there was a Pittsburgh, Kansas? No, I did not. I did not either. (laughs) Back in Pittsburgh, everybody knows her as Angie. After her parents' divorce, Angie's raised by her mom, Ethel, who does anything she can to make ends meet. She starts as a school teacher. Then she operates a taxi company out of the back of a local movie theater. And she reportedly also runs a speakeasy out of her own small house during Prohibition. Nice. Author Susan Brody points out that, quote, at the age of 15, Angie worked as a cocktail waitress out of her own home. Wow. Yeah. That's one of my favorite Midwestern things is going through neighborhoods and then there's a house that's also a bar. Is that a thing? Uh-huh. I know it was back then, but that's a thing still. Well, someone showed me a picture of one in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. Also, they have them in Wisconsin. Oh my gosh, you guys, please comment and tell us about the local literal neighborhood bar, house bar. in your area. House bar. Is it still a thing? Like, what's the story? Who runs it? I want to know everything. Is it truly like a grandma coming out of a kitchen and going and walking (laughs) behind a small bar in her living room? Because that's what it was explained to me as. I just think of all the like light up beer signs everywhere (laughs) and like, right? Oh my God, it's so charming. Okay. I need to know more about this. Yes. I love it. Okay. So this family doesn't have much, but Angie has big dreams. She idolizes Joan Crawford because Joan Crawford also spent part of her childhood in Kansas. But Angie actually, the pictures I've seen of her, she looks more like Lauren Bacall. She's a really gorgeous woman. Mm -hmm. And of course, she dreams of making it big as a starlet in Hollywood. And after graduating high school, she gets a sales job at a Kansas City department store where a male executive invites her to model for the store's print ads. And when she does that, he sends those photos to a friend who runs a modeling agency in New York. So basically, this is the sign Angie's been looking for. It's like, I knew it. Now somebody else has confirmed it. Here we go. Yeah. So against her mother's wishes and without any promise of any work or anything, Angie moves to New York City. Damn. Yeah. She goes for it. She changes her name to Anne Eden because she thinks it sounds more refined. Mm-hmm. And she starts to book some modeling jobs. And then she gets cast in some radio shows and she gets like big roles in radio shows. And then she starts working as a chorus girl in a high-end Manhattan club. And there she finds herself rubbing elbows with the rich, the powerful and the culturally relevant men of New York City. She's even rumored to have had a brief affair with Joan Crawford's ex-husband, actor Franchot Tone. So She's really going after it exactly the way she pictured it in her head. Yeah. (laughs) Just that kind of sad thing of like, this is what I want. Therefore, I'm going to take your sloppy seconds and make (laughs) something of it. Oh, Oh. Oh, man. Oh, the youth. But then Anne makes a much more fateful connection with an older, very rich married man named William Woodward Sr., William Woodward Sr. first spots Anne while she's working her chorus girl gig. The two of them begin to have an affair until William, who is petrified that there'll be a scandal that it'll get found out, Mm -hmm. he decides to end things. But he wants to keep Anne close. So he decides that Anne would be good for his 22-year-old son, Billy. No. Uh Uh-huh. Because Billy's very inexperienced with women, Uh he's 22, but reportedly a virgin. Uh And William Sr. is afraid that that might mean that Billy is a homosexual. Uh. So he realizes Anne could teach Billy a thing or two about the ways of seduction. And (sighs) as author Roseanne Montillo puts it, quote, turn him around. That is so twisted and 
It's gross. Gross. And so there's so many, many levels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. the, the onion of grossness. Where this, do we start unpacking? Just layers, this? layers of grossness. The past was such a different time. Truly. Here's the real kicker at the end of this page there. Anne agrees to this arrangement. So Anne's like, sounds good. She got something out of it, I bet. I'm sure. And also, it, he's a really old man. So it's not like she was in it for love in the first place. She was right. like, yeah, I'm, I'm here to play the game. Let's sure. do this thing. So before long, Anne spots Billy at the club that she works at. Mm -hmm. She recognizes him from a picture his dad showed her. So after she's done on stage, she goes out into the audience and she meets him and they have a drink together. Billy is clearly and immediately attracted to Anne. She's five years older than he is. She has tons of confidence. More importantly, she's completely different than any woman Billy has ever known or the women that he grew up around. Mm -hmm. Unlike the stuffy debutantes that he has known his whole life, Anne is sensual and funny and flirtatious and outgoing and all the things you're not supposed to be in high society. Mm -hmm. Billy doesn't seem to know about Anne and his father's past. And then the two soon develop a real connection and eventually, and probably forbiddenly, they fall in love. Mm. Now, that's not daddy's original plan. Uh So it's definitely not what Billy's parents have planned for him. He's their only male heir, right? Yeah. They're the upperest of crusts. Those are the people that have essentially arranged marriages. Yeah. It's obvious William Sr.'s conflict of interest, creepily obvious, but Billy's mother, Elsie, She's disapproving of the relationship simply because she's an elitist and a snob and she's like, no way. Mm -hmm, To mm -hmm. Elsie Woodward, Anne is the kind of woman high society men have a fling with, but do not marry. Little does she know. Right? (laughs) She's surrounded in this (laughs) situation. Someone with Anne's background is simply not up to Elsie's standards, Mm -hmm. which are sky high. In a 1955 article in Life magazine talks about Elsie Woodward's status in high society, saying, quote, she has long reigned as one of the city's most distinguished hostesses and still reigns as perhaps its most distinguished dowager. Hmm. So... She is a kind of a legend, Mm -hmm. and clearly they're not going to be like, and whoever you love, son, (laughs) bring her on home. Writer William Norwich says on A Crime to Remember, because, you know, on that show, they do individual interviews with people. He says on this topic, quote, when Elsie saw Anne Eden come into her court, there was only one reaction that was possible. N-O-C-D. That was everyone's favorite expression in those days, end quote. And what he's talking about, Mm N-O-C-D, stands for not our caliber, darling, or not our class, dear. Ouch. Uh Uh-huh. It's your worst fear. Rich people are gossiping about you. (laughs) And like, in fucking, is that an anagram? No. In initials. (laughs) Yeah. It's slang. You're not even worth the whole sentence. No. Mm. It's very upstairs, downstairs. How about (laughs) G-T-F-Y? Go, no, G-F-Y. Gold Coast forever, (laughs) bitches. I can't spell. Here's the thing, though. It's not just Elsie. It's everybody. Like, no one is having Anne in this group of people. Many of New York's upper crust are horrified that a bottle blonde Midwestern girl is trying to infiltrate their ranks. And I mean, that's really Mm -hmm. how it's seen, of course. 
you watch the Gilded Age, right? We've mm-hmm. talked about the Gilded Age. It's like that thing. I don't think we have, but I yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. Where it's like even the super rich, if you have new money, then you're not in. Right. Like it's that crazy and old and it has a lot of rules, I guess. Oh, tight. Yeah. I like talking about it as if I know anything about it, where I'm like, <laughs> I'm absolutely from the people that come in the servants' entrance. <laughs> <laughs> and give everybody fucking proud of it. Typhoid. Oh. Yes, for real. <laughs> give everybody typhoid. <laughs> I'm the typhoid class. And among the naysayers, this is kind of fascinating, is Truman Capote. No. Yeah. Truman. Author Deborah Davis says that around the time Anne and Billy start dating, Capote, quote, was writing breakfast at Tiffany's. He was invited to everyone's parties. When he saw Anne Woodward, he really saw her as, in his words, a phony. Ouch. He despised that about people, end quote. Mm -hmm. Which is, I think, it's a good lesson to learn as you go through life when there's people who have a real problem with other people like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, what would that be saying about Truman Capote? It's like, oh, yes, if if we all remember To Kill a Mockingbird, like Truman Capote is poor. He was raised by his grandparents. He's from, you know what I mean? He's not a blue blood. He's not the New York elite. Right. He's an interloper. So yeah. he's seeing another interloper going, it's her. Everybody focus on her. Right. Because <laughs> totally. he can't be him. Anyway, despite the open and hostile judgment of the relationship, Anne and Billy do get married. And at first they actually seem very happy. And then of course, as we know, the cracks begin to show. Mm -hmm. And partly it's because Anne is trying to transcend social classes. So she is forced to pretty much change everything about herself. Her appearance, the clothes she wears, her demeanor, of course, those Hollywood aspirations like are way gone. And she has to pretend to like decor and furniture and things that she's probably never cared about or known about. Yeah. And as stifling as this transformation sounds, it's something Anne genuinely wants to be doing. She, it's a fair trade-off to her. Wow. She comes from so little. She understands and craves the security and the comfort and, of course, the luxury that comes with extreme wealth. And so she tries desperately to fit in. That's the heartbreaking part where it's just like, oh, yeah, now you're actually going to try to do this thing that is going to make it so it doesn't work. Or it's going to make it so people who don't like you, like you. Or it's like people who don't deserve your time and energy, you need to force them to like you to fit into your life. Like what a sad endeavor. Tough. You know? Yeah, rarely works. And especially I think with people like this who are truly pretty much a cult at this point. It's so inside. Totally. And then going against that, Billy selfishly wants her to stay the woman that she was when he met her. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want her to become stuck up and prudish like the other elite women of New York society. Mm -hmm. He wants her to be the person he was when he met her, which was young, hot, and always available to him. Mm. So author Deborah Davis says, quote, Billy was an inexperienced youth sexually. He was imagining a never-ending honeymoon with his extremely desirable wife who had once taken him places he never imagined going in his sexually repressed world. Once Anne was married, she was more dedicated to being respectable than she was to being a playmate, Hmm. end quote. Okay. And what choice does she have? She doesn't get to be all things to all people. Like you can't play the Marilyn Monroe part while you're trying to fit into that level of society. Totally. Look, I know I've tried it. (laughs) (laughs) So by the time Anne's pregnant with the couple's first child, Billy's already having affairs. So it's that quickly. 
he eventually becomes less and less secretive about these relationships. So right in front of Anne's face, he's dancing with other women at balls. He's flirting with them at dinner parties. Mm. He carves time out of his very busy schedule to meet with his mistresses. Like he just doesn't give a fuck. And Anne isn't the only high society woman dealing with a cheating husband in this specific era. Turning the other cheek to a cheating husband is basically a part of the society lifestyle. Even Elsie Woodward herself, who's an extremely powerful woman in New York, must endure her husband's constant affairs. So that's just the way it is. Yeah. So the problem is that Anne isn't passive. She's not reserved. She does not want to accept Billy's disrespect or lack of affection toward her, obviously. Mm -hmm. But she also doesn't want to lose the security that comes with being Billy Woodward's wife. So she's genuinely worried and scared that she could lose everything if Billy left her for another woman. And she has real reason to be concerned about Billy divorcing her as his friends and his family encourage him to do just that. In fact, Truman Capote isn't even the only writer who disapproves of the Woodward's relationship. Billy's good friend, Ian Fleming, creator of James Bond, right, is among the growing number of people who try to convince Billy he could do better than Anne. Yeah. So Anne is fighting to keep her husband interested. Sometimes she is playing the perfect, doting, constantly available wife. And other times she openly flaunts her attractiveness and shows him that she can get men herself. Mm Because why wouldn't you? Then in 1952, it's kind of a nice turn for her. She's in her late 30s. She's named one of six, quote, great American beauties by Vogue magazine. Wow. Mm hmm. Susan Brody points out that, quote, the other five women were all younger than Anne and born to great wealth. So she kind of was like, she beat the odds. Yeah. Anne is also voted best dressed woman in sports by Sports Illustrated magazine for the outfits she wears to horse races because Billy owns racehorses. Mm-hmm. Horse races, racehorses. Yeah, he owns racehorses. Mm-hmm. So they're at the races all the time. Okay. And she's basically getting press for how she looks at these horse races. She even sits for a portrait by Salvador Dali, who tells Anne that her beauty, quote, makes his mustache vibrate. (laughs) (laughs) Gross. All right, pervert. Also, you know, what's funny is that portrait looks like if I tried to like Photoshop what I thought a Salvador Dali portrait of like a 1955 socialite would look like. Yeah. It's the weirdest thing. It's like a really bizarre background where like there should be melting clocks, but it's just a lady standing there in a dress. (laughs) So meanwhile, the Woodward's marriage is becoming increasingly toxic. The couple is starting to have blowout fights in public. One particularly violent scene playing out after Anne finds a lipstick-stained handkerchief in her husband's pocket. According to a 1955 Time magazine article, Anne scratched Billy's face, quote, until it bled. It's just making me think of, because it's like 1955, so it's like a little bit earlier than Mad Men, where it's just like, oh, Mm -hmm. men could do whatever the fuck they wanted all the time. This guy was super rich. Yeah. And... He could just do whatever he wanted. So like, what would he fucking care? (laughs) It's just, just insane. The two are so overcome with obsessive jealousy that they each hire private investigators to follow the other. (laughs) So they're like that bad. And as it does in the cycle of abuse, Anne and Billy's more explosive episodes are followed by a short-lived honeymoon phase. Then that period ends and then the cycle repeats itself again. 
So as this relationship becomes more and more volatile, they actually even have separation agreements drafted, but neither of them will ever actually sign. So Mm -hmm. it's like a lot of threats and a lot of noise. But then at the end of the day, it seems like they both don't want to get divorced. Yeah. So now I'm gonna take you back to the night of October 30th, 1955, which was the night they were at the dinner party for the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Mm And they come home. Nobody really knows what happened after that. Basically, the story picks up when the police arrive at the scene and they find Billy Woodward dead in his bedroom doorway. Anne is sobbing hysterically and holding her husband's dead naked body in her arms. When she's questioned, she insists that this is what happened, that around 2 a.m. she heard her toy poodle bark. (laughs) The poodle's name's Sloppy, but... We can't get into that right now. Okay. All right. I'm going to let that go. (laughs) We have to, because we have to to keep going. Anne claims she saw, when the dog barked, she saw the outline of a man walk past her window, followed by a noise that convinced her someone was breaking into the house. Mm -hmm. Anne and Billy sleep in separate bedrooms off of the same hallway. They're about 20 feet from each other. So Anne tells investigators that after hearing those noises, she gets out of bed and she grabs a shotgun that she had in her room nearby. Mm -hmm. She takes it out in the hall and in the dark, she sees a man appear in the front of Billy's door. So she fires twice. And only afterwards does she realize she hadn't shot an intruder. She'd shot her husband. Now, unlike most people who have just shot and killed someone and is not subjected to intense questioning, she is certainly not taken down to the police station. Instead, she's quietly whisked away to a luxurious Manhattan hospital suite to compose herself in private. So as investigators dive deep into this case, it slowly becomes clear what happened. Billy was definitely shot to death by Anne. That's, there's no one arguing that, Mm -hmm. but they don't know if it was a real accident or if it was a murder staged to look like an accident. Anne of course is adamant that she thought Billy was an intruder and this isn't some wild paranoia of hers or like a random lie. There had been incidents of a so-called prowler in the months leading up to Billy's death. Several wealthy residents of this specific part of Long Island had had their homes broken into. According to Susan Brody, the prowler had been, quote, sleeping in their pool cabanas and taking items from their kitchens, gun closets, bedrooms, and pool houses, end quote. The prowler had stolen food and jewelry and other odds and ends and often left messes behind, signaling to the homeowners that he'd come right in under their noses. Damn. The Prowler became something like a boogeyman, spreading fear and anxiety throughout Long Island's Gold Coast elite. Investigators speak with all of the 58 party guests that mingled with the Woodwards on the night that Billy was killed, and they suggest that nothing out of the ordinary happened between the couple at the dinner party. However, those guests did confirm there was a ton of discussion about the Prowler that night. Oh, shit. It seemed to be the absolute top of the Woodward's minds. Anne and Billy had just found discarded food scraps and shotgun shells all around their property. And it made them worry that the prowler was interested in their home in particular and that he'd somehow gotten his hands on one of their firearms. So Anne would later tell the DA that she and Billy agreed to, quote, arm ourselves and be prepared for the prowler, end quote. And that's why Anne had her shotgun just sitting by the bed. 
So when I first read that, I was just like, oh yeah, because you just keep a gun right. in the corner. Not, not usually common, I would say, on the Gold Coast. But both Woodward's were actively prepared to engage in a standoff with an armed intruder. That's like what they were thinking about. Yeah. Of course, firing a shotgun in a dark house, even if there is a home invasion taking place, is extremely dangerous. The room for error is huge. And the Woodward's young children were also in the house. Oof. So it seems totally insane. But Anne's doctor would later note how irrational the couple had become about this. He says, quote, separately, the Woodwards were able to keep themselves under control. But when they were together, they infected one another with the sort of tension each might be feeling at the moment. And it built up tremendously. It was like that with everything. And that obviously was what happened in the case of the Prowler. Between them, they built up their fear and determination to catch the Prowler into an obsession. And when Mrs. Woodward was startled by the noise, Grabbing the shotgun and shooting was a conditioned reflex, end quote. I could see that. I know. Now that people are actually like talking yeah. it through. Yeah. So given his social prominence, the death of Billy Woodward is a very big deal. But for nearly a month afterward, the Woodward family, headed by the now widowed Elsie, is completely silent on it because Elsie does not want there to be uncontrolled media attention, rumors, or society page gossip mm -hmm. about her son's death. And Elsie's efforts to control the situation are sometimes drastic. She actually tells Anne that her two young sons will be shipped off to a European boarding school because according to Deborah Davis, quote, Elsie did not want her grandchildren to have a mother who murdered their father. That would have been the ultimate scandal, end quote. Which is true, can't argue it. Right. Anne herself does not appear in public or give any statements about the shooting. It's unclear if this is by choice or if she's encouraged to do so by her mother-in-law. Either way, Anne doesn't attend Billy's funeral. Instead, Time Magazine reports that she sends a floral arrangement to the service, and it includes a ribbon that says, quote, from Dunk to Monk, which were their nicknames for each other. Hmm. Interesting. But as much as the Woodwards would like to control the narrative around Billy's death, the story inevitably breaks when Anne is called to testify before a Nassau County grand jury, and all the details about the night of her husband's death are dragged out in the open. At the hearing, Anne is described by the New York Times as looking, quote, haggard and in anguish, end quote. And she tells the same story that she first told investigators. She thought someone had broken into her house. She confused her husband with what she believed was the prowler, and she pulled the trigger. Despite all the violent and volatile history in the Woodward's relationship, the grand jury ultimately clears Anne of any wrongdoing. Yeah, you kind of have to, right? I guess, yeah. I mean, if there's no evidence, and they were talking about it obsessively that night. It's like the very people who would judge her and be probably the cruelest or the coldest to her are the ones going, no, this really was a thing. Yeah. This was an issue. And she could have used it as an excuse and killed him, but there's no way to prove that. So. There's no way to prove it. My only thing that's still a dangling, sorry to say a dangling Chad. Why would I say a dangling <laughs> Chad this far? Because of the dog's name. The dog name just fucking <laughs> sloppy. cast a shadow over this story. I want to talk about sloppy for 20 minutes. <laughs> And I was like, that's right oh. when I'm explaining what the fuck is happening. Yeah. I can't, I can't do it. I you, can't. Yeah. You had a time, there was a time earlier, but it, it's passed. If somebody's looking for a pet name, they want to <laughs> name their dog or cat Sloppy. Yeah. Why not? Such well, a good name. Is well, it? well, well, but here's my dangling Chad, as I was saying, uh -huh. two shots, not one. Didn't pull the yeah. trigger and then go, holy shit, did it twice. Now, 
Who knows? But she thought it was him until she turned the lights on. She thought it was him, but that you would have to be so sure. I don't know. And she thought he had one of their guns, too. She thought he was armed. True. If it's real, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, she's probably so freaked out. When's the last time she's held a gun? I will say my thing would be that if I were really scared someone were prowling, if there was a thing going on, I would insist on sleeping in the same bed as my spouse that night. Yeah. That's my only thing is I I wouldn't want to be alone. Right. That's a little bit of suspicion to me. Maybe he fucking snored to high heaven and she's like, well, I can either sleep afraid or not sleep. Right. And like they're fighting that bad that there's this thing happening that they're all keyed up about and yet they're not solving it, which is kind of like a good metaphor for their relationship where it's like, what are you guys doing? Just solve it. What what's happening here? Yeah. Also, just one of those kinds of things that's like reversal of fortune, even, where who will ever know? Like, it's just a true mystery. You can't know. That's where deathbed confessions come in. Well, actually, that's where (gasps) this comes in, which is really compelling. So Billy's death is chalked up to a tragic accident. And Anne is ultimately vindicated when the prowler (gasps) is finally caught. Hmm. Is a German immigrant named Paul Wirth's he lives on the streets and he is finally arrested for all these break-ins all around Long Island. Mm-hmm. He will eventually admit that he was in fact at Billy and Ann's <gasps> house on the night of October 30th. Holy shit. So he really was a prowling. Yep. He was the prowler and he was a prowling at their house. He says that he climbed a tree onto their second floor terrace before entering the house through an open window. He admits that he made a loud noise as he stumbled into the house and then he heard a gunshot. (gasps) So because he heard a gunshot, he got scared. He climbed back out onto the roof. He jumped off the terrace and he ran away. Oh, so she's totally telling the truth. Yes. Wow. Okay. So even though Anne has already been exonerated by the grand jury and by Paul Worth's admission, that should arguably exonerate her in the court of public opinion. As yeah. writer Mark Meredith puts it, quote, Anne's detractors, and there were many, mainly due to her less than blue blood, were happy to let the rumor mills roll to the tune that she had murdered Billy and that she was dropped like a hot rock from the society she was so eager to be a part of, Ouch. end quote. So they didn't care that the real guy got caught and was like, yeah, that's literally exactly what happened. Oh my God. Rumors swirled that a jealous Anne had killed her husband in cold blood and that Elsie had pulled some strings to get Paul Worth's into the picture. <laughs> By this logic, Elsie needed someone to supply the perfect explanation that would prevent Anne from becoming a convicted murderer, which would sully the Woodward name forever. So that's the rumor, but there's absolutely no proof to the rumors. In fact, the proof is going the other way, that they found the guy and the guy was like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah. But what happened in the Woodward house on October 30th, it was almost certainly an awful accident, but it doesn't stop people from piling on Anne and nobody more notoriously than Truman Capote. It is unclear why there's so much bad blood between Anne and Truman Capote. Roseanne Matillo theorizes that it has something to do with how similar they are. That's sorry. That's what I said before, but this is Roseanne Matillo's theory. Yeah. She writes, quote, both had overcome hard scrabble, unsteady, fraught childhoods. Both had cajoled, clawed, and charmed their way into the elite circles that they sought to enter. Mm. Both were vulnerable and mean. Wow. End quote. Whatever the case may be, they didn't get along. 
Capote would eventually claim that he had once approached Anne in a restaurant, notably long after he'd already decided that she was a phony, and claims that Anne called him a gay slur. Could have very well happened, although that's nothing Anne ever admits to. Mm -hmm. So in return, Capote starts referring to Anne by a nickname that actually ends up catching on Mrs. Bang Bang. Ooh. Rough. So then in the mid-1970s, Capote's working on a novel that includes an incredibly unforgiving chapter on Anne Woodward that's thinly disguised as fiction. <gasps> Deborah did, and this is something Truman Capote was known for, and he would like make friends and then like turn on people and then to write incredibly shitty stuff about them, and everyone would know that's who he was writing about. Oh, like he did it to a bunch of people. <laughs> Deborah Davis, who puts it very bluntly, says that Capote, quote, depicted Anne the way he saw her as a gold-digging whore, end quote. Damn. Yeah, God forbid, as a woman, you try to do the things that men are doing. <laughs> so in 1975, this specific chapter is set to run in Esquire magazine, and someone sends Anne an advanced copy. When she reads it, she's devastated. There's a line that literally says, quote, once a tramp, always a tramp, mm. end quote. Then in what any reader would immediately assume is about Billy's death, Capote writes, quote, of course it wasn't an accident. She's a murderess, end quote. So Anne learns the exact date that Esquire is going to publish this chapter, which is on October 25th. She makes a note in her diary. Alongside her scribbling, she writes, quote, I must be far away. And on the morning of October 9th, 1975, 57-year-old Anne Woodward is found unresponsive in the bedroom of her Fifth Avenue apartment after having taken a cyanide pill. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. It's reported that just a week later, Truman Capote calls up one of Anne's friends not to express condolences or regret. He wants to dig up dirt and learn more about the circumstances <sighs> of her death. But when he asks this friend about Anne, she simply says, quote, she was a sad person. Oh. Elsie, who is 93 years old at this time, wow. so Elsie's still around, shows the same level of compassion that Truman Capote showed after Anne's death. She will say, quote, well, that's that. She shot my son and Truman just murdered her. And so now I suppose we don't have to worry about that anymore. <sighs> Your grandchildren are going to read what you said about their mother. Yeah. And they're not going to be very fucking stoked about that. It's so shitty. It's so awful. But it also feels to me like that's a coping mechanism of a woman who has absolutely no idea how to deal with or process grief or tragedy or yeah. her own feelings or place in that or doesn't understand empathy for people who aren't exactly like her in some way or has never felt empathy from other people yeah. while her husband cheats on her with the same girl that he sets up their son with Jeez, i wonder when they found out about that i mean could you imagine no <laughs> the answer is just no just no and i don't want to talk about it anymore <laughs> summarizing Anne's rise and fall deborah davis says quote Anne wanted to be famous, to be rich, to be in high society. She got all of that. Her prayers were answered, and it was her absolute undoing. She was destroyed by that, oh. end quote. At her bedside, Anne kept a notepad with a letterhead that read, quote, don't forget, and underneath she had written two words, Anne Woodward. And that oh. is the story of the shooting death of Billy Woodward. Wow, what a just full-on tragedy. 
And it seems like we're talking about 1900, but it was yeah. literally in 1955. Yeah, it does. So those parties, a lot of quaaludes. Oh, wow. Well, great job. So mm. fucked up. Thank you. So fucked up. Hey, what are the chances you know all of the subscriptions you currently have, Karen? <laughs> Those chances are slim and none. And Georgia, let me ask you something. Did you actually cancel those subscriptions or did you just plan to cancel them? Mm. And then did that price go up or was it going to go up? Dude, too many questions. Let Rocket Money help you see the big picture without the headache. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills all in one place. You can see all your subscriptions in one place, evaluate what you need and cancel what you don't with a single tap, say goodbye to painful customer service calls and hold music. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and they take care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million and canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash murder. That's rocketmoney.com slash murder. Rocketmoney.com slash murder. Goodbye. Right now, there's a lot of talk about new year, new you, but why should you have to reinvent yourself? Ugh, yeah. Stitch Fix wants to celebrate who you are by helping to define your personal style so that it reflects all the unique parts of you. Think of them as your style partner. Your Stitch Fix stylist will learn about your tastes and collaborate with you to find looks you'll love. You might be thinking a stylist is out of your price range, but with Stitch Fix, you share your desired budget along with style and sizing preferences. And they have over 1,000 brands and styles with sizing ranging from extra small to 3x and you get to try everything on from the comfort of your own home with free shipping both ways the more you use stitch fix the more precisely their style experts are able to match you with the perfect pieces for you i went on there the other night and i bought a like whole adorable outfit of really cool brands yeah that idea that there's somebody there going hey have you thought of wearing this with this maybe you've never tried it but if it looks good on you and it's comfortable on you then they can help you find your new style. Stitch Fix understands you and your style. So try today at stitchfix.com slash murder and you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash murder. Stitchfix.com slash murder. Goodbye. I'm going to tell you a story. I could introduce it in one of two ways. On one hand, it's a naval wartime tragedy that took place just 34 days before the end of World War II. Okay, fine. However, the other way I could explain it is that I'm about to tell you the story of the deadliest shark attack in U.S. history. Oh, oh, I think I know what this is. It sure is. This is the story of the sinking of the USS Indianapolis and the U.S. Navy's botched response. Oh, you're grabbing your cheeks and shaking your head. If you know the movie Jaws. Yeah. The speech from Jaws. The <laughs> this is what it's about. Oh, my it God. Is. It is. Good one. Good one. Thank you. I'll tell you, the story comes from the speech given by Quint in Jaws. His character tells a harrowing tale about an enemy's missile, leaving him and hundreds of others shipwrecked, stranded at sea and clinging for dear life in a days long shark feeding frenzy. Oh. And that's why he hates sharks so much. Yeah. And that's 
understandable. That's giving your character motivation and subtext. There you go. Look at you. (laughs) Writer's glass from Karen. Look. (laughs) The main sources used in today's story include an article from the Washington Post titled, How Did a World War II Japanese Subcommander Help Exonerate a U.S. Navy Captain by Daryl Austin and an e-book available on the Naval History and Heritage Command website written by Richard Hulver and edited by Peter C. Lubke. And the other sources can be found in our show notes. Black eyes, like a doll's eyes. (laughs) You should read it and do it right now. Perform it. As a monologue? Yeah, everyone go watch Jaws after this. Mm -hmm. So here's some background. It's all, you know, naval stuff. Background stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Launched on November 7th, 1931 and commissioned... On November 15, 1932, the USS Indianapolis is one of just two U.S. Naval Portland-class heavy cruisers, which are large warships designed to travel long distances at high speed. After the Japanese, of course, attack Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the USS Indianapolis joins the war effort. She contributes to multiple campaigns over the course of the next four years, including protecting U.S. aircraft carriers near New Guinea in March 1942, sinking an enemy ship belonging to Japan in January 1943, and serving as the flagship for Admiral Spurantz during the Battle of Okinawa in 1945. But the USS Indianapolis' most consequential contribution to World War II would come on July 26, 1945, so towards the end of the war, in the form of a top-secret mission, the overseas delivery of the core components of Little Boy, which is the atomic bomb headed for Hiroshima. Let's start with the days leading up to this delivery. After sustaining a kamikaze hit near Okinawa on March 31st, 1945, the USS Indianapolis lands at the Navy Yard on Mare Island in Vallejo, California. What are the fucking chances? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. It is weird. Didn't the Golden State Killer hit there, too? In Vallejo? The Zodiac definitely did. Right. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. So the ship's captain, Captain Charles B. McVeigh III, and his crew of 1,195 sailors remain in the Bay Area through mid-July 1945, getting the ship repaired. So a Pennsylvania native from a Navy legacy family, McVeigh graduated from the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland in 1920. He worked in Washington, D.C., serving as the chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee of the Combined Chiefs of Staff, which is the highest military intelligence unit making all wartime policy decisions during World War II before taking command of the Indianapolis in November 1944. So high up, high ranking, smart dude, knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. He got a silver star working for the Indianapolis. It's the third highest military award for bravery. So, like, this guy's not fucking around. On July 12th, 1945, while in the Bay Area waiting for the Indianapolis to be fixed, Captain McVeigh gets word that the Indianapolis is to be used for this top secret mission once it's fully repaired. The mission is so secret that not even Captain McVeigh knows what it is. Like, they don't even tell the captain of the ship. All he knows is that he's going to be given some materials that are to be delivered to Tinian, one of the northern Mariana Islands just north of Guam. So at 12 noon on July 15th, 1945, the USS Indianapolis receives these materials at Hunter Point and the ship sets sail the next day on July 16th, 1945, completely unaware that the cargo on board is the makings of an atomic bomb. Wow. It feels like you just got to give someone a heads up, right? It makes sense that they wouldn't. I guess it's like if it's all in separate pieces that don't can't be combined to who knows. explode. That makes sure that makes sense. 
So they reach their destination on the morning of Thursday, July 26th, and successfully deliver the cargo. They make a short trip south to Guam, arriving the next day, and they refuel and stock up on ammunition and other supplies. So then on the morning of Saturday, July 28th, 1945, the USS Indianapolis makes a straight shot west to Leyte, which is a province in the Philippines. The journey should take them three days. So they're projected to arrive on July 31st, 1945. So everything's gone smoothly up until this point. But it turns out as the vessel makes its trek to Leyte, a looming threat lurks below the waters watching them, a Japanese submarine I-58. So in the middle of the night on July 29th, 1945, the sonar man aboard the submarine is patrolling the Philippine Sea when he picks up on a strange sound coming from about six miles away. He hears the rattling of dishes and realizes it's from a ship galley. So in the submarine, they realize there's a ship because of the rattling of dishes. How creepy is that? That's not good. Not good. No. So he flags the sound for the submarine's commander, which is Commander Mokitsura Hashimoto. The commander orders his crew to stalk the vessel. And once they get close enough, they identify it as an enemy ship. Moments later, at 12.04 a.m. on July 30th, 1945, the commander orders his crew to fire six torpedoes at the USS Indianapolis. Just two of the torpedoes hit their mark, but it's more than enough to do serious damage. On board the Indianapolis, 20-year-old U.S. Navy Corporal Edgar Harrell had just gone to bed when he felt the blow of the missiles. The strikes landed in the middle of the vessel near the ship's fuel tank, causing an explosion that kills all the power. He's unable to see much in the darkness, but he can hear the water seeping in and feel it rising beneath his feet. As Corporal Harrell later recalls, quote, the first hundred yards of the ship was under. We knew the ship was doomed. We knew that our ship was going to leave us and it's going to take us with it unless we get off. So like immediate evacuation. Captain McVeigh, meanwhile, is trying to assess the damage, but the ship's rapidly sinking and the damaged communication systems are also not working. So he can't really tell what's going on. So he has his men try and send out distress signals, but ultimately it's of no use. It's at this point that Captain McVeigh orders his crew to abandon ship, staying on board himself until the last possible moment to make sure as many people as possible are evacuated. In just 15 minutes, the massive heavy cruiser is completely swallowed up by the sea. And it takes roughly 300 men with it. So that leaves the remaining 895 sailors adrift in the water. (sighs) The survivors hang on to anything and everything at their disposal. Life vests. There's some rafts and there's also debris that they use to stay afloat. Ordinarily, the Navy tracks the position of all vessels at sea so they can react in times of distress. But because the USS Indianapolis was conducting top secret work, the vessel wasn't tracked and they also hadn't been granted an escort, which McVeigh had asked for Hmm. because they didn't want to like draw attention to the fact like this is an important vessel by giving them an escort. So basically, this means that no one's coming to their rescue. So the 895 stranded sailors drift apart in two large groups. 
The first group, which includes Captain McVeigh, is situated northeast of the wreck, just outside the grasp of a strong current. And they luckily have rafts to save them from having to tread water and being submerged, but they're still left with very little food and clean water. The second group is carried southwest by the current, about seven to 10 miles away from Captain McVeigh's group, and they're protected by nothing but their life vests. Hmm. So they're not even on rafts or anything like that, which is like, God, the cold ass water, like open sea. Oh my God, leave me alone. So these life vests, unfortunately, are only meant to stay inflated for up to 64 hours. That's like, they're not supposed to be fucking carting you around. They're not long-term. Yeah, it's emergency only. Yeah, so with no one on the way to save them, it's just a matter of time before the vests give way. Some of the sailors don't even make it past the first day either succumbing to injuries they sustain in the wreck or losing their minds to the brutal conditions of bobbing at sea. Which you don't think about that being like a mind fuck too, right? Yeah. Some men pass away and slip out of their vests into the water below. Like they take them off on purpose. They're like, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. Other survivors claim those vests to keep themselves afloat too. Like they're just looking for anything to keep them alive. Yes, of course. When night falls that first day, July 30th, a small group of three or four men swim away in search of food, water, or help, and they return by morning saying that Indianapolis didn't actually go down and that they spent the night aboard the ship drinking fresh milk, tomato juice, and water. And so stunned and full of hope, another group swim off in search of the ship. Like, oh my God, we're saved. Hmm. But it turns out the first men had just experienced an awful hallucination. No, like a group hallucination. Yeah. Like that's how bad you would only have been a day. That's how your mind, you know, with thirst alone is like, you know, maddening. Yeah. That's wild. So those men who swim off in search of the actually sunken ship, they die of starvation and exhaustion. They're never seen again. Yeah. With every passing moment, the air pressure in the vest decreases. If a sailor in a vest isn't actively swimming to help keep himself afloat, he could doze off, his head falling forward and putting himself at risk for drowning. In order to fend off exhaustion, the men have to take turns sleeping, keeping watch over each other to keep each other alive. Can I just say I'm slightly like winded and sore from sitting on a couch for an hour? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, Just thinking of that, where it's like, you know, it's fun times when you're like treading water in the pool or whatever, but for a day in like salt water and in like scary huge waves or whatever the hell's going on. No food, no water. You're injured. Treading water is hard. Like that shit, we all know, right? It's like yeah, people train to do water polo for fucking months and months to be able to tread water just a little bit. Yeah, but you never have to play a game of water polo after you've survived an explosion. Yeah. Like you didn't, no one gets exploded into the water polo pool. That's the craziest part. Yeah, you'd protein loaded earlier in the yeah. day. <laughs> God damn. Okay. Yeah, it's so awful. So as sailors work to fight starvation and exhaustion just through sheer power of will, another danger approaches your worst fucking nightmare. Suddenly the men spot dorsal fins emerging from the water's surface and encircling the group. Mm. That's right. Sharks. Like what the fuck? Can you? And also like the protocol has fallen apart. So all of the things that all of these men are trained to do, that they know to do, their strengths, all the ways that they are strong, which is like this unified thing. They're just now put into like a scenario that is never 
you know, it's like it just isn't. Yeah, you don't learn that at basic training, like what to do when you're circled by fucking predators in the water. And trapped and no one's coming to help you. Just a nightmare. Sharks. Like this story is bad enough, but I think the sharks are like the, what make it so epically insane. So Corporal Harrell later recalls, quote, you look, the life jacket goes under, unquote. So like basically you're watching a guy and the person just gets fucking pulled under just like that. Mm. Bloodied remains of his fellow sailors would then bob to the surface. The sharks picking men off each time they come around. Every now and again, blood curdling screams echo from the distance. Another sailor overcome by delirium, starvation or shark attack. Uh. Three days pass before Corporal Harrell and his group come across a crate of rotten potatoes. It's the first food they've seen since the wreck. They remove the rotten parts the best they can and share whatever's left. It isn't much, but it keeps them going in the midst of this seemingly never-ending horror. Finally, four days later, four fucking 24-hour periods... At about 10.25 a.m. on August 2nd, 1945, 24-year-old U.S. pilot Lieutenant Wilbur Chuck Gwynn is flying over the area conducting a search and reconnaissance mission when he spots something in the water that isn't the enemy ships he's been looking for. So he wasn't even looking for them or the ship, but rather fellow U.S. military personnel floating in several groups across a roughly 200-mile span of ocean. So he's Mm. not even... He just comes across... A disaster. Yeah. A gigantic disaster. Lieutenant Gwynn radios the base saying, quote, many men in the water and asking for backup. As he's unable to fly his aircraft low enough for rescue, his base sends a second pilot, Lieutenant Adrian Marks, who flags the incident for another nearby ship, the USS Cecil Doyle, roping them into the rescue mission as well. So fucking finally. Yeah. Arriving on the scene first, Lieutenant Marks is able to lift 56 men to safety. Hours later, the USS Cecil Doyle shows up and finishes the job. It takes a full 24 hours to pull the remaining survivors out of the water. But they managed to do it. And when all is said and done, originally the crew had been 1,195 men. That's how big the crew was. The amount of people left who get pulled out of the water and are still alive, 316. That's... A lot. So while alive, the survivors are in rough shape. Their tongues are swollen from dehydration and saltwater poisoning. Some require surgery and heavy antibiotic doses to avoid having their shark bites and other wounds infected. Their bodies are so spent from treading water, they can barely sit up on their own, let alone stand. And many men have lost anywhere from 20 to 25 pounds in a matter of three and a half to four days. That's how arduous it was. I'm sorry. I just realized when you said that about the antibiotics that there were men who were attacked by the sharks and not killed. Right? Yeah. Just bitten and terrorized, but not killed. That's, oh my God, I didn't even think of that. I know. Unfortunately, the Navy, okay, so here's, this gets fucked up, fucked upper. Unfortunately, the Navy made mistakes at every turn that proved fatal for the crew of the USS Indianapolis. In addition to denying Captain McVeigh the escort through to enemy waters that he requested, Navy leadership also denies ever receiving a distress signal from the Indianapolis, despite reports from individual servicemen saying that they did. Mm. While the ship wasn't being formally tracked, Navy leadership did know that the Indianapolis was scheduled to arrive in Leyte on July 31st. They knew it was starting here and going here on this day. The day had come and passed and nobody searched. No questions were asked. The ship just wasn't there. 
moving on. Uh. Perhaps the biggest blow of all, though, is that the Navy knew through a top secret code breaking program that there were enemy submarines positioned along the Indianapolis's route. And that knowledge never appeared on the intelligence report that Captain McVeigh received on board. So the war finally ends, and with it, the American victory. The Navy officials want to do anything they can to protect the U.S. military's image, so they cover their tracks and find themselves a scapegoat for the tragedy of the Indianapolis. And that scapegoat is Captain McVeigh. Shortly after his rescue, Captain Charles McVeigh is court-martialed on two counts, failing to order his men to abandon ship and hazarding the ship, or basically carelessly putting the ship in harm's way. He's court-martialed for those two things. The first charge doesn't stick because the Indianapolis went down so quickly, and the only accounts from other sailors is that Captain McVeigh did everything possible to get his men off the ship. So that doesn't stick. The second charge, however, is hammered in by prosecutors. They argue that Captain McVeigh was ordered to steer his ship in basically in zigzags. You know how they tell you to run from a person with a gun in zigzags? Mm -hmm. They're like, well, we told you to do that with the ship in order to avoid enemy fire. And you didn't do it. And so you put your entire crew at jeopardy. That's what they tell him. And to prove their point, the prosecutors have a very shocking surprise witness, Commander Mokitsura Hashimoto, the fucking captain of the submarine who took down the Indianapolis, they call as a witness. In his testimony, Commander Hashimoto confirms the prosecution's argument. Captain McVeigh had not been zigzagging. But in another surprising twist, Commander Hashimoto undercuts the prosecution's entire argument by stating that the zigzagging actually wouldn't have made a fucking difference to him at all. Yeah. The ship was entirely defenseless, and as such, a change of its sailing pattern wouldn't have changed the way Hashimoto fired the missiles, and it wouldn't have helped the ship avoid the fire. So kind of miraculously, this (laughs) once enemy comes forward and is like, this is kind of bullshit you know i wonder like if it was part of the treaty or whatever where you have to come and do this thing and get us out of this or whatever and he was like i have no choice in this but i'm also not going to lie or pretend that that because when you said that and it's like how the hell would i know but that idea it's like it's a submarine firing up so like that idea of zigzagging it's not firing from below it's like it can perfectly laser in on exactly what you're doing. Plus, ships move so slowly. Why would that matter? You just, to me, it seems like a bunch of bullshit. It's, yeah, totally. Yeah. So in his own testimony, Captain McVeigh also owns up to the fact that he did not zigzag, but said he wasn't definitively instructed to do so. And by his own account, he was told to zigzag at his discretion, weather permitting. The real crime, the defense argues, was the Navy's failure to alert Captain McVeigh about the fucking actual presence of enemy submarines on his route. Yeah. Even still, Captain McVeigh is found guilty of hazarding his ship. Up to this point, he is the only captain in the history of the U.S. Navy to be court-martialed for the sinking of a ship during wartime. The conviction doesn't come with any jail time, but it does drastically reduce his rank, destroy his reputation, and ruin his lauded military career by that point. In 1949, Captain McVeigh retires from military service without his reputation making a recovery. The surviving members of his crew find it completely unfair that McVeigh has been forced to shoulder the blame for the sinking of the Indianapolis. Many allowed him as a hero for doing what he could to save the crew. But many others take his conviction at face value and hold him responsible for the loss of their loved ones. 
For years, letters pour into McVeigh's mailbox from family members of the fallen crew members, shaming him for failing to protect their sons. One letter in particular reads, Merry Christmas. Our family's holiday would be a lot merrier if you hadn't killed my son. So not great. In 1960, a surviving crew member named Giles McCoy approaches McVeigh about petitioning the Navy to reverse his conviction. McVeigh doubts it'll work. He wants him to drop it. But four years later, in 1964, he changes his mind and he gives McCoy his blessing to pursue an overturn. But as the years go by, McCoy's and other survivors' efforts prove fruitless. The guilt becomes too much for McVeigh to bear. And on November 6th, 1968, at the age of 70, Captain Charles Butler McVeigh III takes his own life. It isn't until 28 years after Captain McVeigh's death so now we're in 1996, that the calls to overturn his conviction gained some traction. A sixth grader named Hunter Scott from Pensacola, Florida, chooses to research the USS Indianapolis's sinking as a part of a school project. Like, where are you now? That is incredible, right? For real, yeah. This sixth grader conducts 150 survivor interviews And reviews as many as 800 documents pertaining to the incident. Wait, he conducts the interviews? Yeah, the sixth grader. I'm sorry. So the horrifying stories of men sitting there waiting to be eaten by sharks. Yeah. That you're telling that story to a sixth grade boy? (laughs) I guess so. Or maybe it was just all about the captain. But Jesus Christ, like, I'm just saying, even if there was a chance of some of those stories trickling in where it's like, oh, my God. He had to be a mature, precocious kid, right? And I would think that he would have a grandfather in the military who understood the importance and the tradition and all the different things. Yeah, And no doubt a really great teacher because, you know, that needs help, too. So incredible, right? So Hunter School Projects helps raise enough awareness to earn Congress's attention. (laughs) In a joint effort of the surviving crew members and Captain McVeigh's sons named Chemo and Charles, and Senator Robert Smith of New Hampshire agrees to support them and introduces a resolution to exonerate Captain McVeigh. The chairman of the Senate Armed Forces Committee and former Navy Secretary Senator John Warner of Virginia refuses to bring the resolution to the Senate floor for a vote, which stalls her efforts. Boo. Okay, but here's where it gets crazy. Commander Mukisora Hashimoto fucking appears once again to make one final contribution to clearing McVeigh's name. He writes Senator Warren a letter saying, quote, our peoples have forgiven each other for that terrible war and its consequences. Perhaps it is time your peoples forgive Captain McVeigh for the humiliation of his unjust conviction, end quote. He knew all along. He knew all along. Yeah, for sure. And so with that, the resolution to exonerate Captain McVeigh is voted on, passes, and is signed by President Bill Clinton on October 12, 2000. Thirteen days later, on October 25th, 2000, Hashimoto passes away. Oh. It was like his last fucking <gasps> heroic act. Oh, How amazing my is that? God. Despite Congress's exoneration, it takes until July of 2001 for the U.S. Navy to officially clear the charges from McVeigh's official record. Survivor Giles McCoy is overjoyed by the news and said, quote, Captain McVeigh was not guilty of anything, McCoy says, except for the fortune or misfortune of war. So in 2005, an event is held for the 60th anniversary of the USS Indianapolis' sinking. 
Commander Hashimoto's daughter and granddaughter, Sonae Hashimoto Aida and Otsuko Aida, respectively, join the event to support the survivors. Oh, my God. They're not sure their presence will be taken well, understandably, like, but the survivors and their loved ones welcome the women with open arms. Together, they all sing God Bless America, demonstrating an unprecedented display of healing and forgiveness. And that is the story of the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. I cannot believe that that story, as horrible as the one thing I knew about that story, that the sharks circling up wasn't the worst thing. The idea (laughs) that the Navy would try to pin it a series of missteps and mistakes and whatever. Clear missteps and mistakes that they made and then pin it on him. And resulted in the deaths of a thousand or, you know, 700 plus crewmen. I don't know what the terminology is. And they would try to say that captain did it. They they punished him for surviving almost. For, For surviving and yeah, getting through a scenario that nobody should ever go through ever. Right, right. To the degree where the captain of the submarine on the other side is like, this is insane. What are you doing? Totally. God, unbelievable story. Yeah. That's crazy. I know. So wild. So wild. (sighs) Wow. I'm glad I know that. Yeah, right? Yeah, because it makes me feel better about like humanity. Yes. Let's believe in the human spirit, shall we? Yeah. Let's do that for 2024. Why not? I'd love that. I'd love that. Yeah. Thanks for listening, you guys. Hey. Hey. Hey, guys. We believe in you and your human spirit. That's right. And just let's really focus on football. (laughs) Twice baked potatoes. Let's focus on the starches that are going to get us through this winter time. Hell yeah. Oh, you know what I just saw on TikTok? A really fascinating thing where if your house is cold and drafty and you're you're in a cold snap area, Uh you can replace your electrical socket cap things, you know, Uh the backing on it. Uh You can get a new one that keeps like drafts from coming into your house. I never thought about the draft coming through there. Yeah, because we live in California. But like (laughs) when it's a fucking minus seven outside, you want all of that shit blocked up and you can get ones that like block it for you. Anyway, if anybody needs that piece of information. Yeah, I love it. Stay warm, stay aware. Be careful of the ice wherever there's... What about the videos? Those videos of people eating into the ice. Oh, the horror. The humiliation. It's so humiliating. And there's people that are just like, well, I guess I'll go crawl on the sidewalk to try to go get something to eat or drink down the street because this is the situation. But I saw a guy who was trying to walk on like icy steps. And the one of the tricks they say Uh is at least this is one TikTok video. Don't bet the house on this. You put tube socks on the outside of your shoes. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. Speaking of tube socks, if you have a bat by the side of your bed for when bad things happen, put a tube sock on that. Because when you swing it at someone and they try to grab the bat from you, they grab the tube sock instead. (laughs) This is this episode brought to you by Tube Socks. Tube Socks. They'll keep you alive. <laughs> save your life. <laughs> Stay sexy. <laughs> Don't get murdered. Good night. Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alejandra Keck. Our managing producer is Hannah Kyle Creighton. 
Our editor is Aristotle Acevedo. This episode was mixed by Liana Squalache. Our researchers are Marin McClashin and Allie Elkin. Email your hometowns to myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. Goodbye. Goodbye.